This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. You know who I am. You know my name. I'm Matthew Rushing, and of course with me as he is always, my fantastic host from the north, Dan Gunther. How's it going, Dan? Hi, Matthew. Uh, going pretty well. Uh, excited to be back on another week to talk about uh you know, another Star Trek story that I really enjoy. So uh, happy to be here. That's the, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I got to say right up front, this is a definite improvement over, I think, um, part of what we read in the worlds of Deep Space Nine, you know, the last time we're, we're going to be jumping into that uh, next book in that series. And, and they're, of course, split up into two stories. So we're just going to be covering the first one, Trill. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'll give it away too. This book on a whole is really interesting and so much Star Trek stuff brought up um, when it comes to like ideas and philosophies and and, um, societal norms. I mean, just it's as much Star Trek ideology crammed into one book I think you can especially with this being only half a book actually you know mm-hmm. this is what 160 pages or so yeah so, for yeah. As, as small as this book is there is a lot to talk about yeah, in it for definitely sure. is um well we don't have Dan and I scoured uh, there's really no news to talk about I will mention that David Max Seekers 3 came out. So everybody pick that up. We are going to be talking to him later this month. Uh, make sure you get long shot. I haven't gotten a chance to start it just yet. I'm very excited to dive into that one. I think it's going to be a blast. I really enjoyed the first two Seekers books, and so I can't wait to do that. So make sure Literary Treks members, friends, listeners, all of you out there, pick that up. I know it would make David really happy. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, I do have to say I did start it last night, and I'm really enjoying it so far. So uh, I'm a huge David Mack fan. And, Spoilers, uh, spoil earmuffs, earmuffs. <laughs> all I'll say is uh, it's good so far. Um, awesome. Probably about halfway through. It's, That's it's great to hear. pretty great. Well, because we don't have any news, we're going to jump into our feature. Uh, but I uh, just wanted to remind you, of course, uh, Trek FM has 20 different shows on it. And if you would like to check out any of those different shows, really encourage you to go over to trek.fm. You can see all the things that we have there with the shows revolving around the series. Uh, of course, you're on the Books and Comics show right now. We have the 602 Club, General Geek. We have Behind the Scenes with Commentary Trek Stars. We've got different points of view with women at war. I mean, there's just a million different things I feel like here on Trek FM for you to check out. So I hope you'll do that. Take a look there at trek.fm. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Trek FM. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. So check out those places and um, find your way into your next podcasting addiction, Trek FM. Well, Dan, uh, we did say uh, there in our very quick news segment, even though it covered no news except for the fantastic <laughs> news that David Mack's new book, we're going to plug it again, is is out this week. And we talked about the fact we are going to be covering Worlds of Deep Space Nine, book two, part one, Trill, <laughs> Unjoined, longest title ever. 
probably the most number of colons in a Star Trek title ever. <laughs> An excessive Worlds amount of, of Star colons. Trek, Deep Space Nine, Volume Two, Trill, Unjoined, An Overabundance of Colons. By. Oh man, <laughs> that can be taken many different ways too. When you think that Bashir's Ooh, a doctor, yeah. and so uh, under uh, overabundance <laughs> of colons. Wow, I want to see that story turned into a Star Trek book. Uh, God, do goodness. you though? Do you really? <laughs> uh, not so much. No, um, you're right. Uh, it sounds like a terrible story. Actually, it sounds like a great skit you might see on like Key and Peel or something. Um, oh yeah, yep. you know, just the most ridiculous thing ever. So, well, okay. <laughs> Down to business, Trill Unjoined follows up on the events that we had kind of round out in Unity, where the parasites had come back. Shakar had been killed by a Trill operative because he was a parasite host. The entire thing went haywire, and now we're dealing specifically with the fallout here with Trill. And, and I do have to say just right away, Dan... One of the most amazing things is the world building that happens here, Mm -hmm. you know, because we have only seen bits and pieces of the Trill Society and how it really all works hasn't been explained. And yet I feel like in this 160 page, you know, almost e-novella, really, they do such a great job of laying out the trill as a species and and what their society is like uh and Mm. and all of that i really do think it's pretty impressive for sure yeah there's a lot uh that we don't know about the trill and uh, part of that is because you know they've keeping themselves hidden from the rest of the federation and that sort of thing uh but just yeah the day-to-day life for the humanoid trill on the planet and also you know the the pools in which the unjoined symbionts live. You know, there's there's so much to this world and, and how they interact with each other and what being a trill means, what being a joined trill versus an unjoined trill in the day-to-day life on that planet means. Uh, there's a lot here that the authors kind of had to work out and present to us, and I think they did an amazing job, really. It is really a mystery, just I think the society at large and I mean when we think about the history of Trill itself and okay how did they find out you know like that they can be joined um, and where did these symbiotes kind of come from and all of that we actually get a taste of that they, they kind of give us a slight history of the first of their species the symbionts that mm-hmm. joined with a humanoid and it was really fascinating. I mean, I didn't even remember that that had happened in the book. And when we got there, I was like, oh, man, this is so, so great that they're telling us this kind of background, you know, and really mm-hmm. opening up the species and making them so deep, which as we see with all of Deep Space Nine and the, the aliens that they touched, whether it was the Bajoran, the Cardassians, the, even the Klingons, um, of course, the Dominion, even the Breen. I mean, you learned an enormous amount of, about all of these different species that you just didn't know things about before. And mm-hmm. these worlds of Deep Space Nine books on a whole just continue that process. And I think that's just so awesome to see that the writers really took that mantle and like okay we got to do what Deep Space Nine did which was really give depth to these species Mm -hmm. yeah I loved that uh that kind of depiction of the first joining and I mean that makes a lot of sense I think it was a a trill symbiont kind of came upon uh one of the host species kind of dying and and joined with it and realized oh hey this is kind of cool like a smart body that I can interact with and that kind of thing. Um, I'm curious, have you ever read the, uh, the nitpickers guides uh, to Star Trek that came out uh, quite a few years ago now? You know, I haven't. Okay. Uh, the, the author of one of them, I think it was in the rev- in his uh, nitpicking guide for the episode, the host from TNG was kind of speculating how the trill got started. <laughs> and he was wondering if there was some, evil warlord in Trill's past that would kill his enemies or, you know, uh, torture his enemies by implanting various animals into it. And then one day, oh, hey, they became a different person. Uh, I think 
the situation in the book is a lot more plausible than what he came up with there. No, I, I, I think you're right on, Dan. That was so exciting to have happen. And not only that, but realizing that the symbionts had actually been experimenting, at least this symbiont had, the symbiont's name is Seth, of riding on animals that would allow it mm-hmm. to join with it and and not in the same way of of you know going inside a pouch or anything but they would actually just ride along on the animal and be able to kind of connect with it and experience it you know through the emotions of the animal what was happening but it was interesting with that when it joined with the trill humanoid for the first time that it could see it could perceive sight of of what was happening like that they were able to connect in that way that gave them the ability to experience life in a completely different way. And I just thought that was such an interesting scene and and really fascinating idea of what that would have been like and how, I mean, honestly, strange for both. And so, uh, yeah, this background, this world building here, um, you know, I, I have to give it to the authors, Martin and Mangles did a fantastic job of really opening us to what it means to be a trill and as we're going to talk about kind of why their society is the way it is and it you know in the end it's it's um it's fascinating honestly i mean it really just is i i could i, could, I feel like i could read a whole story series just about the history of the Trill and in almost the same way that you know they did the Tarak Nor series so we got the background of the Bajorans the Cardassians god I'd love to have I don't know just a, I feel like maybe a three-part series about you know the Trill and maybe them um maybe the first book dealing with their early history second book kind of maybe when they meet the Federation or something I don't know just there's so much going on here that I'd really like to know more about Dan, I think that really just kind of leads us into to one of the things that's really a part of the Trill Society, and, and we have seen this in all of, you know, what we do know from canon, which is, this is a society of secrets. Um, you know, uh, Trill Society has that uh, basis in deception, and, or, or I think I liked what you said here, the omission for centuries mm-hmm. um you know especially about um well one actually for the forgotten origin of the parasites i mean they don't really know um <laughs> that that much um they're so a, good at keeping it a secret they it, they ended it, up keeping it a secret from themselves yeah and, and <laughs> no one remembers <laughs> never keep secrets from yourself that's oh, yeah. a bad idea yeah <laughs> um yeah, and then of course, I mean, the whole idea of the percentage of population that could actually be joined, and mm-hmm. it really, oh God, there's this, there's so much in here, but that really leads me to the question of: Can you have a society like this? Could it, could it really have functioned for so long? You know what I'm saying? Like, does it mm-hmm. make sense for them to actually have lived out this lie? in their society for so long and nobody to have found out really until now it it just seems kind of strange when Mm. yeah and i know you live in a society of secrets but you also live in a society with technology and i mean i don't know what do you think well and i mean especially a society that's built on memory really i mean these are really long-lived creatures who you know, pass down their memories from one host to the next. So, yeah, you'd think in a society like that, it would be harder to bury things because your contemporaries would have knowledge of, you know, the day-to-day life way back when kind of thing. So, yeah, I feel like it would be very difficult to make this work on a huge scale. Uh, But maybe it's kind of something they've been doing for so long that it just comes naturally to bury these deep secrets. I mean, even from the rest of the Federation, they hid the fact that they were a joined species for years and years. I mean, you know, the Trill are known in the period of Star Trek Enterprise and shortly thereafter, like from the very early days of the Federation. And they managed to keep secret until the 24th century that they even had symbionts that 
could join with the humanoid hosts. So yeah, it feels like it would be very difficult to maintain, but maybe their society is just so built on this idea of burying shameful secrets or secrets that could harm society that that's just second nature to them now. It is really interesting that two weeks in a row we're talking about societies where a lie is put forth as the truth to Hmm. save the society. Yeah. And yet, at least here, we can see how the lies, as they unravel, they're leading to, they're always going to have a consequence. It's just about how big the consequence is going to be. And Hmm. it just seems to me that maybe we, as people, should kind of learn that building our life on lies is never going to end well like ever <laughs> it's 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 always yeah. going to come out and when it does the only question is is how big of a defcon level are we going to be when it comes out you know mm-hmm. yeah it feels like you know a lot of these uh lies of omission were started for very good reasons uh you know the parasites were kept secret because of you know what the reaction of 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 the people might be uh, the fact that Trills can join was kept secret from, you know, the rest of the Federation because they were fearful of what they would think of them. And, you know, the ability of most of the population to join is was a secret because, you know, they don't want the people to start treating symbionts like black market goods to be traded and that sort of thing. But the thing about secrets is as important as the reasons are for keeping the se- them secret in the first place, those bad effects get multiplied once you add the deception yeah. on top of it. Yeah. So, you know, years later when it comes out, the effect is going to be that much worse than if it had just been known in the beginning. Yeah, it, it, it's an exponential growth of how mm-hmm. terrible the reaction is going to be once people find out the truth. Exactly. And, you know, there's a reason why in the end, um, the saying is the truth will set you free. And um, it it sets them free here, but for chaos. And Mm -hmm. what I didn't quite understand, it, it just seems to me, too, is it's the reason the truth isn't told is that is a preconceived notion that people can't handle it. Right. But also, it seems like to me, make the people a part of the solution. Tell them the truth and make them part of the solution, you know, of tell them about the fact that, yes, everybody could be and can be joined. So, but we only have so many symbionts. Therefore, we have to set up a way to determine who should be the um, the people that are joined. And that symbiosis committee should probably be made up then of people that are unjoined and joined. So it's it's fair and balanced, as they say, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so make the people a part of the solution instead of the problem. You know, mm-hmm. they've made people the problem by not trusting them. And I mean, I think that that that's always been a, a problem of just in general. Seeing that people on mass, we're worried about giving them too much power. And yet, in, in say, like, democratic societies and all that, that's the whole point, is it's for the people and by the people. And, and when you give more people control um, and make them a part of the solution, it it makes them feel like they have something to do. Like, they're, you know, they're, they're part of the inner circle. When you put people on side of the... When you put people on the outside of the inner circle, that's when the trouble happens, you know, mm-hmm. because everybody wants to be on the inside. Nobody wants to be on the outside looking in. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I can't remember where this quote from is exactly, but it was it was from a TV show or something like that. Oh, no, I remember now. Sorry. It was uh, Men in Black, and it was uh, Tommy Lee Jones saying, like, you know, yeah, you think people are smart. You're wrong. A person is smart. People are scared and, you know, panic and that kind of thing. And he's talking about large groups of people being unreliable. And I feel like, you know, the Trill government has kind of taken that idea to the nth degree and said, like, we can't trust our people with anything. So we have to hide hide from them and and do, quote unquote, what's best for them in kind of this very overbearing patriarchal way without 
giving the people a choice and a say in, you know, how they run their affairs. And yeah, I agree with you completely. I think when people come together, you can get some amazing solutions and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, if from the beginning this had been set up as a way to make it fair, you know, right from the very start, I think we wouldn't get this huge fallout that we see in this story. Well, and what's so interesting is this leads to another case, too, of Star Trek genetics going wrong. And, you know, you might have thought that Frankenstein was bad, but just wait <laughs> till you meet Frankenstein parasites. And we find out finally that it really was the Trill themselves who created their own worst enemy, which is another, I think, you can't call it Star Trek trope, really, but it is a thing that we see in Star Trek about how we can be our own worst enemy, and the nail is really hit hard here with the Trill and showing just how wrong they were. Yes, they were trying to save the symbionts on this planet that they had traveled to, but at the same time, Again, we come back to you can't play God in Star Trek because (laughs) it always turns out badly every time we try to do that. I mean, but I think in so many places in Star Trek, we really just see that happen of, of, you know, and especially obviously with eugenics wars, we're trying to make ourselves better. We're trying to, to engineer ourselves to be better. And we're putting the cart before the horse and we're creating a monster. And it's just so interesting how this this gets played out over and over and over again in, in Star Trek. And, and not just on Earth, but a lot of different races now. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I feel like this is the case study that, you know, the people that push for the continuing ban on genetic engineering, like all the people from Earth that that started that will point to this and say, see, see, it's bad. Don't do it. <laughs> Look at this. Look what happened here. It's in all cases. It's awful. <laughs> well, and there's so few alien. I mean, the only alien species that we know of in Star Trek who has been able to handle this has been the Denobulans. Who knows mm-hmm. why? Because we don't know anything about the Denobulans except for the very small bits that we learned from Enterprise. I'd be interested to see a, a discussion in some book, an Enterprise book with flocks and uh, where we learn more about how and why the Denobulans can handle genetic engineering and not have it turn into a royal mess. And maybe it's because they're not trying to do it all at once. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it was that they're, it's just incremental, very tiny things, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe they just show more restraint. Who knows? Because I feel like every time we're doing genetic engineering, you're seeing it like with here at the Trill or the eugenics wars. It's like that all or nothing, you mm-hmm. know? So, Yeah, and I, and Flux even said in that episode to Dr. Soon, like, you tried to redesign your species. Like, you tried to make something that wasn't even human anymore that was, you know, you know, to borrow from the $6 million man, you know, faster, stronger, better. And, you know, maybe that's not the end goal of Denobulan genetic modification. Maybe it's, you know, healthier or, and, and they keep it limited to that sort of thing. But, you know, even flocks seem to have that very visceral reaction to um, Dr. Sung trying to completely change humanity into something that it wasn't. And I feel like maybe the Denobulans just show enough restraint that they don't try to do that. They just try and fix mistakes or where things have gone wrong. Whereas, you know, you take a perfectly healthy human and say, well, I want to make him, you know, run 10 times faster and be 50 times smarter. Well, you know, the average human being's in good shape and is pretty smart. So, you know, why mess with that? Yeah. Well, and it really leads us to the whole idea, you know, the universe is gray in this book. It's not black and white. And even where we end up in the book, it it still leaves things very gray. There's no clear answer to all of these things. And and one of the things you had mentioned that there are sometimes I reasons we keep secrets. Um mm. and and it's not just because it's somebody's birthday. Um, you know, it's <laughs> those those whole ideas of, of um being fearful of what can happen again, as we talked about. And I think that it just creates a really interesting story point of what do you do? I mean, you're doing it for the best intentions a lot of times, this secret keeping. 
but at the same time, it just seems like we we always see secret keeping and that whole idea of, of being in the shades of gray. And I'm not talking about the terrible TNG episode, you know, <laughs> uh, it ended up being in a bad place in a lot of ways. You know, we see that in Star Trek a lot um, that, you know, we start to see too much gray in the universe that you end up in a, in a pretty dangerous place like a Soong or like the Trill here with, um, you know, creating these uh, hybrid Frankenstein parasites, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I was thinking of a, you know, when the story opens, we kind of see Bashir in a Trill hospital, and it feels like the doctors are denying treatment to the unjoined while showing preferential treatment to the joined. And at the time, it seems horribly unfair and like, you know, why would an enlightened species be treating their people like this? And then kind of as the story goes on and we see the the story get to that point, uh, and you realize there were reasons that they were doing that in in that situation. It felt like kind of an interesting uh, way to kind of flip it on its head a little bit and show that something that can look completely unfair, once you realize the reasons behind it or see the motivation that got them to that point, maybe it's not right still, but you can understand kind of how they got there, if that makes sense. Um in this case, it was that, you know, what was happening was affecting the joined trills uh, and not affecting the unjoined trills. So that was kind of an emergency situation that they were going through. But, you know, I kind of apply that to the larger story. And like I was saying earlier, there's there's reasons that these secrets started in the beginning. And at the time, it seemed very reasonable and it made a lot of sense. But, you know, you get to where we are now and that's not good enough anymore. And, you know, you found yourself kind of morally compromised and it, you know, you made a decision and got you to where you are and maybe it wasn't wrong at the time, but it still left you in this kind of morally ambiguous gray area that you have to now fight to get out of and kind of get back to right and wrong, if that makes sense. Well, I think it's so interesting what you're just saying. In the end, you have to rationalize not telling the truth. You never have to rationalize telling the truth. Right. Because you instinctively know that's the right thing to do. But you always have to make <laughs> that's reasons. That's the ethically yeah. neutral. Like that's the, yeah, that's the right thing. <laughs> exactly. And you and we all know that. It comes from somewhere and it just, we know, okay, I should tell the truth. Then mm-hmm. it's that little voice in your head that's like, that's like the devil on your shoulder. Oh, you don't want to <laughs> tell them the truth. And then it gives all the lists of reasons why you don't want to tell the truth. So... It is a really interesting thing to watch play out. And and what was even more interesting was to see a member of the Federation in a lot of ways be in this class warfare of the joined and the unjoined. And Mm -hmm. that the Trill do have this attitude that symbionts matter more than anything else. And that in the end, those that are joined are are really kind of a cut above the unjoined. And it, Mm -hmm. it just seemed to be so interesting that this would happen because... In the end, if a my question became if a symbiont means that somebody basically gets to be immortal, would wouldn't that make the unjoined trills more special in some ways because they don't live forever and it's it's not as though ordinary people can't do extraordinary things, you know, um, and that's kind of what we're playing at here is that in some ways join trills are extraordinary and everybody else is just ordinary and i mean you you look at like lincoln is referenced in this book well look Mm. at where he came from and what he did nobody would expect him to be anything but he became something amazing you know um and just because you're not joined does that mean you can't be like an incredible doctor or scientist or author i mean the list is endless of things that would be lost because you don't have a symbiont and isn't mm-hmm. that just, isn't that worse? I mean, it, it just seems like, to me, the idea is so turned on its head because they've made a god out of, you know, and, and they kind of worship the idea of symbiosis. Um, mm. And yet they're forgetting what they, I mean, they're so worried about memory. 
all the memories you're losing because these other people aren't, tr- you know, joined. Right. Yeah, it's almost like kind of something you said made me think that, you know, it's the things that don't last that maybe are the more precious. Uh, and I'm trying to think of an example, but, you know, something that that's fleeting might be worth more or might be deserving of being treasured more than something that'll last forever. Because you'll always have what that thing that lasts forever. But yeah, like you said, you can totally lose uh, something that's fleeting or that that doesn't stick around. Um, that's an interesting thought that, you know, I, the Vulcans preserve everything in Catrick arcs and, and, you know, they, those get preserved, but on Trill, yeah, a lot of people get lost that wouldn't get lost if they were joined. But, but then again, you come, a, come up against the, well, only, we only have so many symbionts to go around. So how do you preserve that? How do you save that? And I think, with the the status quo of Trill at the end of this story, like those are some questions that are going to have to be wrestling with now is where do we go from here? What, how do we decide this? How do we figure this out? And mm. uh, some very tough questions. Well, and it and it's so interesting too because so many Trill have fought so long to defend the status quo that they've had, and mm. now that it's changed, it really has only changed because of this revolution that forces their hands, and um. I just think it's so interesting and it, it really brings up the question, okay, and I think this is huge, why do we value people and how do we do that? You know, how mm. do we how do we decide what to value? What's what's sacred? What what do we hold dear? Um and and again then why do we do that is huge. Um and and in the end I think that the answer I mean, it has to be or or that we've lost something that all life, no matter how small, no matter what it is, no matter how helpless, all life should be sacred and we Mm. should not take it lightly. And there's some huge, especially these days, political ramifications that go along with that. And I think this book was really interesting to be reading at this point uh, of seeing the way that we rationalize devaluing certain aspects or certain types of life that we just it it it's not as convenient or or it doesn't lift up what we want to like and mm-hmm. i just think that's really really um powerful that this happens in this book and it just makes you think okay how does this work and 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 why am i or why are we doing certain things and i i think it's uh this uh, whole idea too of class warfare and there even this being this in the 24th century on a Federation member planet was, it's pretty shocking because this is not something that, um, this is not a Federation value mm-hmm. at, at all. You know, uh, if anything, um, it would definitely be equality and um, being there, one of their top values. And so it's interesting to see the way that lies and all these situations have made a certain part of Trill society seemingly more important than others Mm -hmm. that kind of thought really made me wonder in this book you know how how well does the federation know any of its members really i mean you've got this coalition of of hundreds of different alien species that are completely different forms of life from one another you know how do you man you know the 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 ways of life must be so varied and diverse that like how do you even judge how one species acts towards a part of itself from species to species like it would just be so mind-bogglingly different and uh you know you've kind of got this almost evolved class system on trill that you know i mean how you interact with that system really decides whether or not it's classist or not but you know whether or not you put one above the other or one below the other they are different so how does that society form how does that work do you call it uh you know a a class system or not and and yeah it's it's really interesting kind of uh how this book really examines the trill culture and and really shows how it would work or really not in this case and it it really comes out being very um 
wanting, I guess, in some ways, <laughs> you know, uh, when you really examine it, yeah, there are some deep flaws to it that are really hard to reconcile. Well, and I think that's one of the things that we've talked about before. It's so interesting in Star Trek is, and then you think about it, the almost impossibility of the Federation in the first place, because mm-hmm. it is impossible for us as humans alone and I don't think we're ever going to evolve to a point where this changes, that we don't think that some people are right and some people are wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that we don't make those ethical judgments. I mean, you can't live that everybody has their own truth in the end because, well, what if somebody's truth is that they can murder people and that's okay? Mm -hmm. Like, and who's to say that's not right? Like, it just, it gets into this ridiculous moral quandary of, of endless um, ad nauseum debate that you you can't go anywhere. So, you know, the same thing in Star Trek and then the Federation, which is so interesting to me, is this idea of, uh, you know, the Federation does have a certain ethical boundaries to it. Like, to be Mm -hmm. a part of us, you have to agree to these boundaries. But at the same time, it just seems like the 24th century also says, well, we should be inclusive of everybody, you mm-hmm. know, like, um, and like, who are we to judge that culture? Because that's okay for their, cul- you know, like you get in mm-hmm. this, it just hurts your head when you start to think about it um, <laughs> yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, then you take it to like the ultimate extreme and say like, what about the parasites? What about their right to live and exist? And they exist by taking over the bodies of other people that's how they live and they so didn't is, come is into being because wrong? they decided to i mean and they didn't evolve i mean quote unquote evolve on a planet or anything like they're created you know mm-hmm. like in the same thing as genetically engineered humans like yeah. you know it it, <laughs> it is it is again it, it does seem to kind of come down to that we kind of instinctively have a demarcation line that we all understand and when you cross over it there's there's that deviation and you're like oh no uh, you know that that's not right you know mm-hmm. that's wrong and it's in yeah. and, it, and as you're reading this book it, you you feel like Julian he's the representation of all of us where he's watching these things happen on trill and he is judging them and he feels bad for judging them. But at the same time, he's like, no, it, it, nobody should be treated like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter what the reasons. And so it is a really, I mean, I love, I love, love that this Star Trek book here um, is, is just having all these issues really crammed into it. And it's, it's dense. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, it really is fantastic. Um and it, it, it had one more thing that I kind of want to talk about, this whole idea um, of history mm-hmm. and, you know, that some things should never be forgotten. Um, and we can't learn from history if we don't know it or study it and then apply its lessons. And how important that is, obviously, here with Trill, of knowing the truth, though, of history, not just mm-hmm. the story we're told, but what was, you know, what really happened and how important that is as well. And uh, it just brought home to me the ideas that if you read through history books you'll see cyclical ideas and how they keep like returning and they just return in different forms but they're really there's nothing new under the sun as ecclesiastes said so Mm -hmm. um and solomon said and that is uh important to know because it means that we can do our utmost to be better people if we are good students of history Mm-hmm. So um, I loved that it really proving that axiom, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Definitely. And I mean, you know, this is kind of the example that everyone goes to, but I'm I'm going to pull it out. Like, you know, a few years ago, I visited Auschwitz and, mm. yeah. you know, it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's a chore to go there and, and see what happened. But it's also something that I think everyone everyone should do because like you said there are things that should never be forgotten and the truth should be known and yeah the this book is a perfect example you know the trill society buried the origin of these parasites um and really like that's what led to them coming back in the tng episode conspiracy that's what led to them being around to attack bajor and try to get at trill uh, 
you know, if the truth had been out there from the beginning and, you know, people were armed or like were able to defend against it because they even, you know, knew the threat was coming, you know, that would be, that would have been so much better than what happened. And yeah, I think so many times in history, you know, burying it and not studying it and not knowing what came before really leads to disaster. Mm. Well, and, and I mean, gosh, I think it's something about uh, the ideology of Nazism and, and what it did and how it devalued people, as we kind of see in this book uh, of devaluing the unjoined because they're mm. not joined. And even them having that name, joined and unjoined, you, you, when you start to put labels on things like that to devalue something so you can rationalize a behavior that's when we are sliding down that very slippery slope into doing some things that are just completely abhorrent. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that this book is really just, I mean, it is pounding that drum of saying, look at, look at what the Trill are doing and then let's look at our world and what's happening out there that, that maybe we just aren't learning from, that we haven't learned from. Um, and it, it does bother me. I think too the idea that people just there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of value even for most people of their own history mm -hmm. you know like not being self-critical about their own lives and, and the places they've been and the mistakes they've made and actually learning the the, the lessons of their own failures you know like mm -hmm. we're all so guilty of that and that's one of our greatest faults as human beings and and yet, um, you know, that's that's the joy of having older people in our lives, you know, whether it's grandparents or our parents or older people, um, we know we meet at work that becomes friends with or and just, you know, those older people, that older generation, it, it, they're not irrelevant at all. They're they're more than relevant to the next generation. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the West, sometimes the way we devalue that is, is sad. So, yeah, history, it's huge. And, and misremembering history or forgetting history is what is so damaging. And that's really what this book just kind of, mm -hmm. it keeps pounding that drum. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it kind of strikes me as funny that, that the trill would become victim to that given that, you know, they don't even have to have the older people around to tell them their history. They know it because, you know, they have a symbiont inside them that has lived for hundreds of years. <laughs> it's kind of funny that 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 lesson isn't stronger in their society. And, and, you know, hopefully with the changes that have been made going forward, maybe it will be now. And maybe they'll, maybe that paradigm will completely shift. And instead of hiding shameful secrets, it will be all about you know, let's make, let's lay everything bare and mm -hmm. uh, be as open and honest about our history as possible. Mm. Well, this book, I, I remembered as I was reading it, this was the book that I, I liked a good portion of it, but then I hated what it did to Julian and Esri because I was a big fan and I still am a huge fan of the character of Julian Bashir. And I loved both of the Daxes. And I really liked that at the end of the series, Julian got the girl. Like that was the <laughs> consolation prize almost for that character. And that they had left it with Julian finally got a Dax. And mm -hmm. um, then I felt like the book series unraveled most of the things that I liked about the end. You know, the cool part about Cisco going off with the prophets and having this destiny and um, going to come back sometime. We don't know when, but he's going to do great things. And basically the guy's a god at this point. And then Julian and Ezri are together. I loved that. And they were still on the station and, and all of that. And to me, in the end, the Deep Space Nine relaunch, as much as I like it, what it does with some of the characters, I really don't like. And this was one where I was just, I was really disappointed with at least the way that it ended here because it just seems so abrupt especially with all the growth that had happened with those two characters you know over the last you know say year and a half of their life together mm -hmm. yeah there were certain things about that that uh, I was disappointed with um, 
I feel like it would have sat a lot easier with me if they'd have explained it a little better rather than, like you said, having it happen so abruptly. Uh, I feel like a lot of things about the relationship, you know, whether like this isn't necessarily the case, but sometimes people would make the argument that, you know, Bashir just kind of inherited the next Dax rather than, you know, getting the person he really wanted from the beginning and that kind of thing. And maybe that's not as complimentary to Ezri as it should be. I, I don't necessarily really buy into that, but I can see kind of some of those arguments. And if they'd have kind of tied it to that idea a little bit more, had it more about, you know, Ezri kind of standing on her own and being her own person, you know, and, and they talk about that a little bit, but that doesn't feel like it's the real driving cause behind this. It feels kind of like what you said. They just decided to kind of part ways without a great exploration of why that is. And yeah, it's a little bit frustrating. And, you know, as somebody who's also a huge fan of Bashir and, and, you know, really admires Dax, both Jadzia and Ezri, I actually really liked Ezri, uh, yeah, it's sad. Good. I we really... can remain friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's always always the nice consolation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, it's sad to see because, you know, you're rooting for the couples you like. And, and I like this couple. I really, I really like both of the people in this pairing. So yeah, it's, it's tough to see for sure. Well, and, and it just seems so interesting. Like you said, it would have been different if they had flushed this out more and maybe that they didn't break up until maybe the next book and they dealt with it more. But just here, it doesn't feel like a good enough reason to not continue. And they have the whole conversation about, you know, Janzia and Bashir and, and him losing her to Worf. And they, they put everything out in the open. And then the, the end is, well, this is the end. It's like, wait, you just actually had one of the most honest, open, real conversations you've ever had as a couple, and you're really growing because you're actually able to have these conversations, which is always a good thing for a couple. And then your answer is that, uh, guess it's over. Like, that just makes no <laughs> sense whatsoever. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, it, it just feels like they finally really connected. And, and like you said, really finally had that mature conversation. And... I, I you made a comment earlier about how Ezri kind of felt like she was being immature and stuff and and a little bit petulant in this mm -hmm. story on the other side of the page. Yeah, we were talking about that. Right, which is, you know, and and that's how I felt Bashir was acting in the stories kind of leading up to this. So, you know, finally at the end of this story they're both being mature and open and and wise and and talking about things and that's when you end it. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. And, yeah. Just think about this. Just think about cool. Okay. I, I know. Take apart the fact that we don't have, you know, what happened with Serena Douglas coming back, yada, yada, yada. Ezra gets her own ship in, in, in Destiny. Wouldn't it be so cool if Julian was her CMO? And they were basically the opposite of, you know, the Crusher and, and Picard relationship mm -hmm. you know um and they're the kind of younger version of that um and i don't know maybe they just i i just i don't understand the 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 reason for taking them apart um because i don't think there was any plan at that point to put him with serena and mm -hmm. uh it just seemed like yes you have had these two immature people finally come to the mature decision and the mature decision is the immature one which is say oh we give up we give up mm. you know it's like that, that that's not what mature people do you know you, it just didn't make sense so I, yeah. I couldn't be more disappointed with the end of the story whereas you know i'd say the rest of the story you know uh, the three-fourths of it have just been downright r ridiculously awesome mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean i can't i can't really disagree with the decision the just the decision to break them up as, as writers. Like I understand kind of wanting to have the characters maybe do their own thing. I just kind of wish the explanation had been a little stronger and I wish the motivation had been just a little tighter to kind of really get me on board with, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's why these two people are making that decision. I can respect that. I just, 
feel like we didn't get it, even though, you know, I'm okay with the idea going forward. I just, you know, wish we'd gotten that, uh, that framework to help me understand the, the decision a little better. Well, how would you end up rating um, Trill and Joint uh, kind of now that we've talked through so much and, and there's still lots of other things that happen in this book? Um, yeah, where would you come down on the story? Well, I, I really enjoyed this story. Um, I remember reading it years ago and again, just reading it now and kind of my my favorite part of it was definitely the world building of the underwater world of the the unjoined symbionts and that you know just the idea of these gargantuan uh symbionts that have literally millions of years worth of memories in them uh, just the idea of that was so overwhelmingly uh epic for star trek and you know kind of seeing the 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 planet and the society work as presented here uh that's definitely the thing i really take away from this story and i would have to give it a rating of one gargantuan mega-sized ultra-old trill symbiont wow wow that's a <laughs> lot of trill symbiontness. yeah Woo. well for me I, I guess you know i i would say i i like uh, three fourths of this book, and then a fourth of it, I just I don't go with. Um, and, and and I think I'm very plot character driven in the sense of like it needs to really make sense with what's happened with the characters, and I just didn't see this character development for them at least here in this book. Um, mm. You know, maybe a few books later they could reference this conversation as the point where they really started to to diverge you know but it is this is not it's not good writing to me all that said though like you said the philosophical discussions that this book leads to the thoughts that it leads me to about uh, just our world in general all of that makes this a, a fantastic book and so i i will give this four out of five unjoined trill because i think they deserve it nice i like that rating that's that's very egalitarian of you <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. I, I think I think our talk about this book kind of went to a lot more places than I expected it to go. You know, it, it got really deep there talking about equality and truth and history. There's really a lot in that book, a lot more than you'd expect given its size. Oh, I, I'm completely with you, Dan. I, I think this is the quintessential Star Trek type story where you're really diving into the issues uh, at hand. And I, I think... That, you know, for all the frustration I had with the character parts of it, it's everything else that really just drives home this novel. And the fact that, you know, almost if Julian and Esri hadn't been a part of the story and had just been the Trill fallout, it could have been so fascinating. I mean, even we didn't mention, but the Trill president giving up her symbiont mm -hmm. uh, because of the the drug that Julian has, has finally found... Um, the formula for that allows that to happen for them to be unjoined and and the fact that she moves that i mean it's just it's an incredible story with all the things yeah. that happen here and and again there's so much more that could happen here on trill uh, yeah a lot of very moving moments in mm -hmm, that story yeah. i found absolutely definitely and and i think it was so exciting to to get to talk about Trill and Joined, and I hope everybody will will definitely check out the world of Deep Space Nine books because on a whole, they've been pretty fantastic, and it's been a lot of fun getting to talk about that today. And um, if you'd like to find out what we've been talking about in, in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe, you can do that in all the different podcasts we have. Um, we've And like I said earlier, we've got podcasts covering every one of the series, We've got podcasts covering every part of the series in the different ways <laughs> from behind the scenes to everything else. And, of course, on the network, we've got uh, our general geek show talking about all kinds of geek stuff. So it, we're everywhere. We're doing everything. We're like Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> and if you're an Apple user, you can find us there. Um, you can hit the subscribe button in uh, iTunes. That helps us out a lot. You can also give us some star ratings and reviews. It really helps other people be able to find the show when they're searching in iTunes. And it 
Also, it's a nice way for us to see what you're thinking about the show, um, what you're willing to rate it. And I really appreciate all of you who've gone there and give us ratings um, and written reviews. It means a lot. If you're you're not on Apple, if you're not an Apple user, don't worry. The shows are everywhere. I mean, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website. And you can grab the RSS link and put that into any podcatcher. You can listen to our podcast wherever you are, anytime. It's fantastic. Um, I wonder which of the podcasts is Wayoon. That would be my favorite. <laughs> which podcast is Wayoon? Well... I don't know. I do the orb with Chris and, you know, we talk a lot about Wayoon and Deep Space Nine and the founders. So could be um, Brunt, though. <laughs> that's true. I mean, there's so many different Jeffrey Combs characters to choose from on Deep Space Nine alone. It is pretty fantastic. So, yeah, you got me there. I don't know. I mean, we'll just say we're the Jeffrey Combs of Trek FM uh, at the orb. So. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for us uh, as a network, um, we keep all these shows coming to you each week with your support. Um, and without that, we'd have a very hard time doing that. Uh, you can become a patron of the network, just like those artists of old and the Renaissance who needed patrons to help them create things. We need you to help do that same thing. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can help us keep all of the shows on the network coming to each week. Uh, we have a lot of different goals um, there that we're trying to reach. We've got some milestone contribution levels and great perks. Will Win, our content manager, has been doing the Patreon roundtables, just giving the opportunity for the listeners to sit around and talk about Star Trek. You can get exclusive content, see it's on the content development team, and a, and a lot more. Um, and of course, uh, I'd like to thank my associate producer, Will Wynn and Ken Tripp, both of these guys, because of Patreon, keep this show coming to you each week. And of course, if you'd like to send us some feedback on the literary tracks and what you think about this book or any book, maybe some of your favorite books, things we haven't covered, just go to trek.fm slash contact. You can look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm to leave us a voicemail course twitter track fm facebook facebook.com slash track fm and of course the babel conference which is where we have great discussions it's a listeners only discussion group just type babel into the search field on facebook go to the website at trek.fm and you can click discussion on the menu bar and it'll bring you there and then dan tell everybody about the goodreads group that we have there on goodreads that allows people to kind of see what we've done before yeah matthew our, our goodreads group there uh like you said, we can see uh, which books we're reading next. Uh, and also we have a bunch of message boards where we're talking about, you know, books we've read outside of the ones we talk about on the show. And there's separate sections where you can discuss, you know, the comics and books we've been talking about in each episode from week to week. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Just go there and uh, click to sign up and w one of us will approve you and get you in the group there and we can start the discussion. And, of course, too, if you're ever wondering, what are all the shows that they've done? Well, we've got the bookshelves there. You can take a look at all the books and the comics that we covered. Almost every single one is on there. And you can see what show we did that on. And you can also see what we're reading next. Um, I always have at least four different shows in the lineup of what we're, com we're coming up. So you kind of know what to be reading if you want to be current with Literary Treks. So check that out on Goodreads. It's always good to be current with us. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, and the coolest thing is, is that I think a lot of people forget. You can just go to the show page on trek.fm under Literary Treks. We have all the different shows we've done, all the show pages there. They have all these links on there. So if you're having trouble remembering them, just go to the show page at trek.fm under Literary Treks, and you'll find all of this information for you. Yeah, and with 115 of them, we don't really blame you if you can't remember every yeah. one. So we've got them all there for you. Oh, no kidding. Well, Dan, before we go, tell everybody where they can find you online. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my website is Treklet Reviews, and that's just www.treklet.com. Uh, reviews of Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekletreviews, uh, Twitter at trekletreviews, and of course you can find me kicking around the Babel Conference. Uh, and Matthew, uh, when you're not exploring the deep depths of the caves on Trill, where can we find you? Worst thing is when the air runs out. Uh, I, I, yeah. 
So just make oh, sure, brutal. yeah, you have a really big symbiont friend to help you back up because <laughs> ooh, be careful down there. Um, I'm just saying, guys. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me on Instagram at MRushing. You can also find me, like I said, on The Orb with Christopher Jones. We talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. So that is the place to be if you love Deep Space Nine. And it's also the place to be if you don't love Deep Space Nine because we're going to help you love it. You can also find me doing the 602 Club where we talk about a great new geeky topic each week, whether it's new, whether it's classic. We just try to introduce you to something that you might love because we love it too. And then you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dan, and I really appreciate it. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.